Okay, Terrell, go ahead with your two questions, please. So, hi, Tom. Hello, Terrell. Hello. Um, I have two questions. One of them probably have a sub-questions, too. It's about point consciousness. When probably it was when you were in a uh, Bob's Monroe um, laboratory many years ago, first time you experienced or probably at home, I don't know, the point of consciousness. When you first time felt it, jump into it or whatever, did you realize that you've been there before and you've been there many times? Did you remember that at that time? And um, when I'm going um, to sleep, uh, like during the day, I, I I'm pretty easily can go to that point of consciousness or just close my eyes and visions change, I can see the auras and this kind of thing. But when I go to the bed, I'm jumping to that state and I'm staying there for a long time and just, you know, browsing there between that point of consciousness and in my room, like ceilings going up and down, corners going down to the top, you know, I'm, I'm right there. And I sometimes I'm not able to fall asleep, you know, things coming in, sometimes I'm able to hold them and go into them, but sometimes I even don't want it and I just want to go to sleep. Did you stop eating because of these things? Because what I realized when I'm eating, it's hard to manage it. But when I don't eat, it's very easier to manage it. So this is the question about point consciousness. Okay. Um, the first one was when I first got the point consciousness, um, did I realize that I'd been there before? Um, sort of yes and no. You know, um, I never called it point consciousness before. Um, I didn't get it, I didn't get there in the same process, you know, I didn't use the same process to get there, but yes, I'd been there before. Point consciousness is just the state you're in when you let go of all your sense data, when you let go of physical reality, okay, you let go of, of, uh, you know, your five senses, you can't, you don't hear anything, you don't smell anything, you don't see anything you know, and so on. And when you don't have any sense data, then all you are is awareness in a black void. There's nothing there, nothing to see, nothing to hear, nothing to smell. You don't feel gravity. You don't feel like you're lying in a bed. You just feel like you're floating in total blackness. And generally, it's very nice. It's very pleasant because it's so quiet and so relaxing and feels very good. And yes, I did spend time just floating around there, just enjoying that feeling. And I played with that for probably many weeks, if not months, just going there and letting go 
and being a point of consciousness and nothing more. Eventually, I got a little bored with it, I guess, and I started to move on to do other things. But I played with it a pretty long time because it's a very nice state to be in, and it helps you make a real firm and steady state out of this point consciousness. If you can just get there and stay there, and stay there for you know day you know for for an hour or two hours, and then come back. Well, now you you're building a really stable platform from which you can do a lot of other things. So I think that working with this point consciousness state, spending enough time there that it's a very familiar, very comfortable place, not just some spot you zip through, but a very comfortable place, probably was important to me, you know, being able to go on past that point. But eventually, I did want to go on past that point because there's only so many times that you can just lay around floating in the void and and uh, getting that deep relaxation. But yes, I did it, and I realized that that's the same state I had gotten into whenever I let go of my sensory data, which I had done as a child. You know, I had done other times when I was just relaxing. You know, the idea, that's, that's the, actually the concept of meditation. Let go of all your thoughts. So you don't have any thoughts. Well, if you don't have any thoughts, then you don't have any sense data. Because all your thoughts are about your sense data. I hear, I see, I smell, you know, and those are all thoughts. And if you don't have thoughts, well, you don't have sense data. So it, it was a different process because at the lab with Bob's, I got there through a process of emptying my mind and relaxation. That was the thing that Bob did. He put on a, he put on this tape for us and, you know, relax your toes, relax your feet, relax your legs kind of a thing, you know, then let go to where you don't, you're not aware of them anymore and then relax the next body, body part and then let go. He had that kind of a process initially when we were just starting out there until we get up to, you know, our head and our mind and then you just let go and then there wasn't anything else to let go of. You were then in point consciousness. And before I had gotten to it, actually much simpler, I just let go of it, and poof, I was there. And eventually I let go of all that process of Bob's, and I didn't really need to go through all that relaxation stuff, so I stopped doing it, and I could just let go of the physical reality and find myself a point of consciousness, you know, floating in the void. So it became easy and pretty much instantaneous, and I had done it since I was very young. So that's kind of that that question. And uh, let's see. Remind me the the second question was related to that. Um, food, eating the food. When did you stop? When did you stop eating? Like eating less, not the not the meat, but I, I remember you said first you kind of stopped eating meat, but later you actually stopped eating and just drinking the cocktails, and that's it. Well, I did do fasting, and I did it yearly. I, every year I would do a fast, and my typical fast was seven days, nothing but water. And uh, I did that probably 10, 12 years in a row every year. And the very first time I did it, I found there was a huge difference. A lot of little nagging physical problems that I had, you know, from from uh, you know, digestion issues to 
other things, even things like athlete's foot, you know, and it all just disappeared during the first fast. All those little nagging things went away. And I was amazed by that. So I thought, well, I'll do this every year. But the each time I did it, I didn't have, each time I had less of a, less of a, um, a change coming out of it because I'd already gotten rid of the junk. You know, most of the junk was gone and I didn't have those issues anymore. So there was less, I noticed less and less as far as, uh, my body changing it during the fast. But when I was fasting, yes, I found that, um, getting to point consciousness and back mental states were particularly easy particularly easy but then eventually even when i wasn't fasting they were really easy too so it you know it didn't make that much difference early on i noticed a, a bigger difference it made it significantly easier but like i say you know 3 or 4 years later i could get there on a full stomach i could get there on a school bus full of kids i could get there anytime i wanted to and it was easy i really didn't have much of a problem so early on yes fasting is clears the mind nicely i think the way it clears the mind is it makes all of your um you know all of those functions in your system that have to be in balance like your blood sugar you know has to be it's just the right balance and the system wants to keep it steady and there's a lot of other things like that too most of the endocrine system is squirting hormones and other things into your system to try to keep systems in balance and when you fast after about the third day of a seven day fast all of that stuff is just settled down and is very very stable your blood sugar isn't going up and down you know nothing else is going up and down everything's just kind of stopped stable right where it wants to be and i think that's why things get easier because you're intense pardon your feelings become intense too yeah that's probably some i didn't have a lot of intensity extra intensity in my feelings but maybe some it's just because the mind is more capable the mind is more clear whereas before you may have had those feelings but they may have been muddier you know not as clear not as sharp and the the clarity comes with the with the uh the steadiness of your physical system you know it's a, it's the it's the body uh you know the body sets constraints on what the consciousness can do with it according to the rule set so as long as your body is kind of flapping around some and is in motion then there's a little you know those are constraints that the consciousness has when the body is very even then uh it doesn't have as many constraints so are you uh are you practicing uh, fasting uh i did practice for 14 days around yeah. six months ago yeah 14 days just water i even didn't drink a water i didn't want to drink a water i realized yeah. as less water i drink as as better it was easier Yeah. I I drink only when I felt like I need a water but I didn't like have a water bottle of water and drinking it all day. Yeah. Yeah. I did that just once. Um most of the time when I did my 7-day fasts I drank 
I tried to, to drink water every, you know, every day. I tried to drink like a quart of water at least every day. Uh, whether I wanted it or not, I just drank it because I thought I was flushing, you know, crud out of my body. That's one of the ways your body eliminates stuff is, you know, it eliminates it in the, in the water. So I wanted to give my body a, a, a place a that it could, huh? That's a belief. Yeah. Well, that's what I thought that it was getting, getting rid, you know, so I was going to leave this channel open for getting, taking the garbage out. So I did that. But one time I did, uh, what was it? It was, um, I think it was five weeks altogether, five or six weeks worth of fasting. And I then didn't take water the first, I think it was four weeks. 20-some days. So the first four weeks, I didn't do any water, didn't do any food, didn't do anything. But I did go to work every day. I mean, I didn't, my life didn't change any. I went to work. I still exercised. I still took took long walks um, you know, for exercise. I did that sort of thing. And eventually, when my kidneys started to ache, I started drinking water again. I thought, oh, that's that's maybe a sign I need to drink some water. Maybe another belief, but anyway. So then I just I drank a little water for another couple of weeks, and then I ended the I ended the fast. But that was more just an experiment. I wanted to see what would happen if I did that. And uh, I had read a book. I can't remember the lady's name who wrote a book called Living on Light, and she claimed that you didn't have to eat or drink anything at all. And after reading that book, I said, well, that's interesting. Let me try this and see what happens. I'm an experimentalist. I, you know, I need to, if it's not my experience, it's not my truth. So I made an effort to do that. But I didn't just, uh, you know, that requires you to stop working, to sit, you know, in a room, to meditate a lot, to stay in a mental space uh, for that to be successful. At least that's what she said in her book. I didn't have that kind of time that I could take out, you know, uh, off from work. My work was real busy and was consuming all my time at the time, and I needed that paycheck to pay the mortgage and, and uh, you know, get through life. So I couldn't take that time off from work. So I just kept working the whole time. Um, I kept my mental state pretty calm, though. I kind of stayed in a meditation state, but not a deep one like she suggested. So it told me that, had I done it the way she said, it probably would have worked the way she said. But I did it enough that I went for trying to remember. I have it all written down someplace, but I went for like four or five weeks without the water. And I've read that you can only live like, you know, three weeks without water. And I went past that without much of a problem. So I realized that there was something there that you your body could do without and it could do that in a rather dramatic way. But it's like uh, everybody says, uh, children, don't try to do this at home. You know, uh, it's not an experiment that you should take lightly. Like I say, I ended up with very, uh, you know, uh, painful kidneys. And I thought, well, maybe it's time to quit because I wasn't really doing it the way she prescribed to do it. I was doing it while working, carrying on my life, you know, everything in my life just kept on chugging along as usual. So, yeah, I've tried it, but I never did it again. I, I learned what I wanted to learn from it, and uh, I, let it, I let it go after that. Yeah, that was enough.
to understand, you know, to go there, you have to do it, just understand when you're being well, you did that. Yes. Um, my second question is, I'm also experimentist, experimental person, and when I've been experiencing this point of, you know, all, all my life I knew that I have something what we call paranormal, but I never was interested in that because it wasn't things that I would like to know about the people when I actually could do it just with going to that meditating state. I didn't know how, but it was always coming the information. When I start to play with my consciousness, let's say this way, and experiencing this point of consciousness and uh, out of body, different realities, and, and realizing what you are saying is completely uh, probably the things what I'm experiencing too, that's why it gave me the belief that you, you're saying the right things. When someone, let's say someone got in a car accident and he's not able to walk anymore. If he has an intention to walk, some people do, some don't. If someone has an intention to walk, he will go to the therapist or even at home, he will start to do the exercises. And what he's gonna do, He's gonna build up back his muscles, connect them, and be able to walk again, right? That's a, you know, intention gave him the opportunity to walk. But during this time, while he'd been learning it, he learned many things about the life, but also, if you ask him, how did you go back to work, back to walk? He would say, I don't know, it's just intention. But particularly, you can see that there is a process in his body was happening that he was able back to walk. While I've been experiencing all this consciousness, staying in this point of consciousness, through there shifting or seeing the auras and different kind of things, I realized there is things in our body that actually, actually responsible for for this digital digital connection, or you know, there is something comes to our body, connects to it, and that gives the data to us. It's in our body. It's like say like an organ. And you have to start to work with that organ to be able to do that. You know what I mean? So while you've been experiencing entire this time and learning how to do it, have you realized it? Like we're talking about um, fear and love, that's the key. But if we go biologically, what's happening biologically in our body, not the waves in our mind, but in a physical way, what's happening, what we have to do. Because when we go to the sleep, we don't feel many things. But when we go through this point of consciousness, you feel more things and you realize why you didn't feel that before. You know what I mean? I, ho I hope I, I explained it in a proper way. Well, I'm not sure what your question is, but let me just push around on it a little bit and you can see if I'm getting there. Um, the more aware you become, 
with your mind, the more you, you grow up, the more you let go of, of uh, you know, the ego and the fear and the beliefs and all that sort of thing, then the more you understand the nature of reality and how it works, the more you understand your body, the more aware you are of, of how your body and everything else works together. You start to see reality not as just piece parts, but as one integrated thing of which everything's connected to everything else. And the body is connected with, you know, the body responds to the consciousness. Now, the body is, a, is an avatar. It's just a computed thing. But it has two roles. One, it expresses the rule set. It's computed according to a rule set. So the body can only do the things the rule set allows it to do. On the other hand, the consciousness, as it grows and changes, the body will change in ways to support that consciousness. So if the consciousness is, is uh, understanding and uh, becoming more, the body will have to change itself in order to support that. So I call that that the, the consciousness leads, the body, the body follows. So there's this, this two-way connection there between the body and the, and, the, uh, and the consciousness. One, the body represents the rule set, but that rule set can do all sorts of things that maybe, it, you know, it has all sorts of possibilities. Let's put it that way. And as the consciousness grows and changes, that body still has to abide by the rule set, but it can modify itself within that rule set to um, to what to uh, meet the needs of the consciousness, and that can be both positive or negative. So let's say you have a person who worries a lot, and they worry and worry and worry, and they complain a lot. You know, they're negative. Well, pretty soon that body will change itself to suit that consciousness. It will become say it'll it'll have uh, low uh, neurotransmitters. It, uh, you know, the brain function doesn't work some more. It it's begins to support depression rather than, than uh, you know, than health. And it does that because the consciousness is that way. So, again, you take some, you take a consciousness that is very upbeat and positive and happy. And even if you have a body that has, say, low serotonin or low neurotransmitters, eventually that'll start to fix itself. So the body changes according to the demands of the consciousness, but it has to only change within the rule set, pretty much, is its limit. Now, you can get beyond the rule set. You can break the rules sometimes, but usually that's just one-off. It's not something that's, that's generally done, but individuals can break rule sets for specific reasons for certain lengths of time. But I'm not talking about that. I'm just talking about in general, your body reflects the consciousness. The consciousness is limited and constrained by the body. So you, you, you're doing the experiments and who is participating in these experiments? Like if you give to someone, if you say to government, this is the nature of our reality, this is who we are, and you tell him this is who we are, and you are the one who is experiencing it, for example, how are they going to believe in that? What kind of proof 
because I understand that I have to go and say this is this is, has to happen in your body that you can able to do that, but you have to go through that through your body. Did you do that to them, or you just say and they and they have to go get over their fears and have have more love to be able to experience that and believe you, or well, they have to go through the physical things in their body that you might tell them, told them, or didn't tell them. How are they gonna do it? For example, I can t teach it to someone and tell him, hey, if you go this way, if you do this, and don't pay attention on that, it might help, you know? And he might kind of experience it, you know, for my child, for my friends, or whatever. Mm -hmm. But when you give to experiments and you talk to the, um, to the scientists, this is what it is, how are you gonna keep them to believe? Well, they won't be able to experience it. Yes. That you can't push anybody to be or do. You have to let them be and do themselves. How but you can't. You can tell people. You. Pardon? How they gonna believe you? Like how they gonna experience that, it? They won't necessarily believe you. It's not really all that important that they believe you. You can tell people things, and if they are ready, they'll grasp it and they'll go do it, and they'll make it part of their own experience. And then they won't believe you. They'll believe themselves because it's part of their experience. But you can't, you can't have anybody's experience for them, and you can't force them to be ready. All you can do is help them help themselves. So you can say, these things are possible, and here's a way that you can approach them. But after that, you have to let them do however they do it. And if they look at it and say, nah, that's just a bunch of baloney. Not true. I tried it for a, you know, a day and it didn't work for me. Well, then you have to let it go. You can say, well, maybe a day wasn't long enough. But if they're not interested, they're not interested. Unless people are ready, you can't take them someplace. They're not ready to go. So it's not, I don't try to get people to believe me. I just give people information they can use to experience things themselves, and if they choose not to use it, that's fine. You gave the, me a proposal to the scientists, for example. That now you, okay, you're talking about my my quantum mechanics experiments that I'm doing? Yeah, probably. You, you know, you have so much knowledge about the nature of reality, you probably proposed it like the information that you know, hey, this is what it is how they're going to experience it and not like believe, but agree with you that you are right based on, they can only do it based on their experience. Now, for example, I do right. it and I know what it is, but how are they going to do that? Well, these quantum mechanics experiments I'm doing, they're just like any other experiment. They don't have to believe it or not believe it. The experiment will just work however it works. They'll put the experiment together and they'll have an input and out will come an output and that's what the experiment does doesn't matter whether they they believe it or care about it or anything else just it's a it's a physical experiment you know you drop a ball and it drops and you can measure how long it takes to hit the ground and anybody can do that so these people that are doing these experiments are going to get all the equipment they're going to put it together they're going to perform the experiment and they're going to report what happened how did the experiment work out and i'm going to take you know what happened and I'm gonna put it up on YouTube and tell everybody well here we did the experiment and here's what happened so it'll just be however it is 
It's not uh, a matter of getting anybody to believe anything. It's just the facts are the facts. Thank you. Yeah, and I'll be happy to report it however it goes, whether it goes the way I, you know, think it will or whether it goes the opposite way, I'll report it because it's good information that's valuable. I will learn something if it goes differently than I think. I will learn something. If it goes the way I think, then other people will learn something. Well, I will too some. So you can't lose. It's a win-win. However it works out, you know, it's going to be knowledge that this is how the reality works. And everybody will be able to use that and know a little better about the nature of reality. So I don't care whether anybody believes it or not. Belief isn't important in this experiment. This is not an experiment that you use your intent to make it come out a certain way. This is just a physical experiment. You just do it and it comes out however it does. And as long as the experiment's done properly, how it comes out tells you this is the way reality works. Got it. Thank you, Tom. Mm -hmm. We have a new member to the fireside chat. One of his questions was asked last month, and it wasn't fully answered. So I'm sure that's due to my part in, in how I was reading it. So we invited him on the fireside chat to ask the question himself. So, Gary, if you're ready to go ahead, please ask your question. Hi there, Tom. Uh, Hi. Good, yeah, good to talk to you at last. I'm sorry I'm not on camera, having a few technical issues. Um, Last month, you described my question as being 15 to 20 questions in a row. <laughs> <laughs> when yeah, fact, that happens sometimes, yeah. yeah. When, in fact, I intended it to be just one question, uh, which uh. was framed in different ways to try to make it clear what I was asking. But okay. unfortunately, the confusion that caused, uh, you did not really answer my question. So thank you uh -oh. for inviting me onto the fireside chat to clarify what I meant. Good, good. Okay, so this bit is not the question. This is just setting the scene for the question, so it puts it in context. Okay. So I'll just read out what I've, I've put down. Uh, let us say that I perform some act of kindness, which is a joyful experience that makes me feel happy. According to the rule set of this virtual reality, this produces in my avatar a hit of neurotransmitters, such as dopamine, serotonin, oxytocin and endorphins, which give me the feeling of happiness. Hmm. At the same time, I'm aware that there is no physical avatar and there are no actual new neurotransmitters, that it is all just information being exchanged between elements of consciousness. However, for the purpose of the example, we can accept that within the context of the VR, a physical, in inverted commas, process is going on. And furthermore, I also retain a memory of the event that caused this joyful experience to happen. The next day, my avatar suffers a terrible accident and is killed, and I find myself back in the non-physical, between lives. I no longer have an avatar to experience a hit of neurotransmitters, and also the memory that created that joyful experience in the first place is now fading and soon to be gone. According to MBT, what I do retain is the quality of happiness or whatever other emotional qualities I am going to carry forward into my next lifetime. 
So this bit, next bit is the actual question. So for that piece of information, which we are calling a quality of happiness to be recorded in the IUOC, mm -hmm. does it require a special type of coding which distinguishes it from a more mundane piece of information? After all, if one chunk of information is purely factual, such as a piece of the rule set, and this other piece of information is encoding the emotional quality of happiness or kindness, how does consciousness differentiate between the two? If the quality carried over to the next lifetime is a general memory of happiness, inverted commas again, isn't that nothing more than a totally neutral word without something specific springing to mind? Okay. Um, let's go back to, to your examples, and I will use those as well to try to fish out some details here. If you... If you do something that pleases you in the physical world, like go, you know, do something that helps somebody and, and uh, you feel happy about that, you will produce some dopamine or some other chemical that will give you a sense of having done the right thing. You know, you'll get a little plus for that. But you can do that in several ways. You can do all, all it requires to get that dopamine is for you to think that you have done something good. I think I've done something good here, so I feel good about it. And the, the feel good about it gives you the little squirt of dopamine. That doesn't necessarily happen at the being level. That can happen at the intellectual level. It can happen to where you are acting kind so you do a, you say kindness is a good thing i want to be more kind so i am going to help people and i am going to do kind things whenever i have the opportunity because that's a better way to be all of that is intellectual and you'll see somebody in kindness and you and you i mean seeing somebody in need and you'll go do some kindness for them and you'll feel good about yourself ah look i did something kind i am a good person and you'll get a little squirt of dopamine but all of that's coming out of the intellect, and it's not at the being level. And there's a big difference between acting kind and being kind. So you get this squirt of dopamine just for being pleased with yourself, for feeling good about yourself, which could just be ego, feeling good. I'm feeling good about me. You know, I'm doing things that, that uh, I think are important and wonderful. And you get a little squirt of dopamine. So if you happen to be a gangster and you just break somebody's knuckles and, uh, you know, they give you their money, you may get a little squirt of dopamine for that that says, okay, good day today. You've just, uh, you know, stolen some money. So it doesn't have to be a good thing. It just has to please you to get your little squirt of dopamine. But it's not so easy after you, after your avatar's dead and now you're going to see whether or not you have gained anything from that as far as entropy reduction, that has to be something that changes you at the being level. So yes, there's a difference there between those things. Um, it's not just about feeling good about yourself at that point. It's about, are you better? Are you a better person? You know, what's, what's changed in you at the core? And that is what will lower your entropy, which then in the next incarnation will come in with a little better 
understanding. You'll start with a little lower entropy at the beginning for the next incarnation. So there's a difference there. There's a difference there. It's not a parallel, necessarily a parallel situation that you're, that you're talking about. You may actually be a very kind person and, um, well, I don't know. It depends on, you know, where you live and, and what you do and what your life is like. There may be only few instances where you actually have an opportunity to show that kindness. And you may not show a lot of kindness because there's just not a lot of people in need in your environment. Or you may be a person that has very uh, little kindness as far as being, but wants to act kind. And you may do two or three kind things every day. So it's not the action that's important. It's the being level behind that action. So does that help clarify it a little? Uh no. <laughs> okay. I understand well, what you've just said. I've heard you say that many times. What I, I, It's obviously the way I'm asking the question. I'll, I'll say it in a slightly different way. Okay. Like everything, you're saying that everything is information. Yes. Okay. So I'm, I'm asking, is there, if there's no quality, quality, difference between one chunk of data and another chunk of data so this chunk of data over on the left is a bit of the rule set and this bit of chunk of data over on the right is the bit of end of coding which describes this quality of kindness or happiness that i'm going to carry forward to my next lifetime those are two different types of information you could say one is a I suppose, an intellectual level and the other one's a being level bit of data. You know, but it's all ones and zeros. So where exactly does the distinguishing factor exist between those two types of data? Is it in the innate ability of consciousness to be able to feel? Well, yes. There must be, there must be yeah. some difference in the data. Right, it's very different. Um... The data that describes uh, what's going on in the virtual reality, that virtual squirt of dopamine or whatever, that's, that's information about the rule set and how that rule set is, is producing what results because of actions and taken. So it's just a matter of, of, uh, you know, computing what the rule set does and that's information. Now, when you talk about the information in the consciousness, okay, that's a little different. Consciousness, remember, came into this, this uh, theory as an assumption. Consciousness is, was one of the assumptions. Consciousness exists. Consciousness is a, is a self-changing system that is aware of itself and of its environment. And it is self, a self-modifying system. So it has free will. So we have all of that comes in as an assumption. Consciousness is kind of a unique element. And it's fundamentally different than the virtual reality. Consciousness is fundamental. You know, I say that's the only thing that's real. It's a real thing. And the virtual reality is just a computed thing. So consciousness, I model as an information system. 
because that was the best way I could figure out how to model it. It is about information. What we're aware of, our awareness tends to be information. All the sense data is our awareness in this virtual reality. So our, our awareness can be seen as information. And our quality can be seen as information. But that's there is a difference between those two. The consciousness is an information system. Exactly how that quality is encoded, I don't know. That Now you're taking my metaphors of, of uh, consciousness as an information system to a level that I don't explain because I don't have any explanation for the details of how that system, you know, that consciousness system information system, how it works to create the information that defines consciousness. To me, that's just part of that assumption that it does that without me really specifying exactly how that works. So I'd say, yes, consciousness is just a little different. It's the real thing. It's the fundamental thing. And all of stuff in the virtual reality is the computed thing that consciousness computes. Now, does that help? Uh, yeah, I guess it does. In as much as you've sort of said that the that in in a way is part of the assumption, its ability to feel, because I, I was thinking right at the you know, the digital Big Bang, consciousness existed as an awareness that was able to distinguish between this state and that state, mm-hmm. um, and and then the uh, sort of a complex process of evolution followed that created this. VR that we experience, and that makes sense. But if it did, it have the ability to evolve from that process, or was that ability to feel present in consciousness right from the start? Yes, consciousness. To be aware, it has to be aware of itself, and part of the way that it is aware of itself is how it feels. Right. That's that's that helps. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So that comes in. Yeah, you're asking. It's a very good question, but it gets down to the point that really, what is it about consciousness that makes it different from the virtual reality? And it is different. And, it, you know, it's not something I can specify because exactly how consciousness, you know, comes to being or exactly how it internally works isn't something that I know or I'm not even convinced that it's knowable. Because it's hard for us to get outside of that system to look at it in that kind of objective detail to come to those sorts of conclusions. So because we are consciousness, I just lump that all in together with the assumption that consciousness exists and then take it from there. So consciousness has these attributes and that it's aware of itself and feeling is, is, you know, part of that awareness. Then that's where I start. I don't derive that. So I can't really pick it apart into, you know, the details of what's inside. Fair enough. <laughs> okay. Have I, have I got time to ask my second question, Donna? Yeah. Okay. Um, my second question is on free will. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I would imagine you've probably heard of Sam Harris, who is uh, famous for his view that free will does not exist. And he makes some very plausible arguments to support his view. Mm-hmm. My interpretation of the main point he makes is that at the very cutting edge of time, the very nanosecond 
of the next delta t it's at that point that he should be able to exert his free will and choose what to think next but his experience is that thoughts just pop into his mind as if from nowhere and he was not the author of them he illustrates this by asking the question what is the next thought that is going to appear in your mind if you can't choose what it is going to be where exactly is your free will he says it is more like we are receivers of thoughts and they just randomly appear and it's not that the case that he has no control of his monkey mind he is a very experienced meditator but his personal observation is that when he quietly watches his calm mind to see what is it is going to produce next he cannot choose what it will be because to do so he would have to think the thought before he had thought it which is clearly mm -hmm. absurd so what would you say to sam harris to help him to realize why his thoughts appear as if from nowhere and to just demonstrate how he is misunderstanding the concept okay. of free will all right his misunderstanding is that he is taking his intellect which is him wanting to place the next thought in his mind and he is wanting his intellect then to program consciousness and it doesn't work that way um again consciousness is more fundamental than just the intellect the intellect's just a a piece of it and it's not even the, the largest piece it's not even the most important piece it's just one piece of of mind as an intellect but we in the west tend to come to the conclusion that intellect is mind is is what consciousness is about that that intellect and consciousness are kind of the same thing if you have an intellect and you can think and you can analyze and you can judge then you're conscious and if not then you're not so we have this confusion between our intellect and our consciousness intellect's a subset there's another part of your consciousness that's the intuitive part and that intuitive part just happens it does it is if you will it is not intellectual it's not pre-planned and the intellect doesn't own it or you know make it dance the intellect's not in charge of it it's another whole part of our mind that that uh, works in an entirely different way so I'd say that is the root of his confusion, thinking that his intellect is his consciousness and is his mind, and therefore he wants to be able to control it with his intellect, and it doesn't work. There's another part of him that's also there that is more at the root and more fundamental, and he's missing that. Now, he and others uh, have done lots of tests where they have shown, where they, they claim to show that there's no free will, and I think it leads down to the same thing. It has to do with this timing. And they will, you know, I, I, this is not their experiment, but this is just kind of an analog. It's just a, a short analog of it. It's like when the bell rings, raise your hand. So they have a, a random number generator that will just randomly ring a bell. And everybody in the audience is supposed to raise their hand when the bell rings. And what they'll find, if they look at the tiny little micro potentials that are deep into the muscle, they'll find that those potentials start to energize in the process of moving the hand before the bell rings. And the idea is that, well, if the arm starts to move before the bell's even rung, then obviously there can't be any free will. 
because the body's moving without the mind ever having experienced the bell. So they use that as a as a uh, a similar example, and that goes way back to the 1950s or 60s when uh, a gentleman whose last name was I think it was Ben L E B E T. French, that would be LeBay. Otherwise, it would be LeBet. I don't know his his origin, but uh, in any case, he did some experiments that were along that line, and other people have duplicated them. Uh, recently, we've had people, uh, you know, show video or show pictures of horrific things, and before the picture is even selected by a random generator, the body already starts to respond to that horrific picture. And it responds differently if the picture is something that's nice and then if something's awful. So they see the body responding even before the random number has picked the picture, which then, of course, is a horrific picture, and the body's already started to adjust for that response. Well, the reason that that works the way it does is that our body is a slow electromechanical device. Consciousness is very fast. In this virtual reality, with avatars, with slow electromechanical systems, there is a problem with video lag. There's a problem with reaction time, with getting that slow system up and moving in time to have a, a reasonably short reaction time that we can do things like drive cars or fly airplanes or that sort of thing that requires faster reaction times. And in order to get rid of that, what happens is that the system starts that, that clunky electromechanical body going before the event just to reduce video lag. And it does that based on the future probable database. It looks and says, well, what's likely to happen and because it's a virtual reality it knows what that random generator is going to pick and what picture will come up and it's aware of all of that because it's computing all of that it's a did you know it's a um, it's a virtual computer and it's a virtual picture and you know it's all in virtual space which it's computing anyway so it knows all those answers and it starts that body going so that the picture comes up and there isn't this long pause before the body uh, you know reacts to it otherwise we'd be very limited in the kind of things we could do with these avatars so that's the that's kind of the answer for for those sorts of things but i think the confusion is that the intellect is consciousness the intellect is not consciousness even your own little chunk of consciousness your free will awareness unit is not consciousness. It's just a very, it's a subset of a subset of consciousness. So when we talk about consciousness, we have to talk about it at several levels. There's consciousness that is, you know, the larger consciousness system. Then there's the subset of that, which is the uh, individuated unit of consciousness. And then there's a, you know, a, a partition of that that breaks off a subset of that, which is what a human would call their consciousness. Okay. Now, that consciousness is the thing logged on to the virtual reality, so it has some data being sent to it and that the computer sends to the avatar to uh, reduce video lag, and there's other things going on just with that free will awareness unit that isn't really indicative of consciousness in general. So 
do all of those things uh, help you with that explanation? Yes, they do. Thank you very much, Tom. Yeah, I'd I'd love um, Sam Harris to hear all that. <laughs> that would be interesting to see what, how he would yeah. he would react to that. Yeah, and I understand where LeBay and Harris come from. I mean, they're looking at it, and they have they have you know opinions or they have beliefs. They have belief that their own intellectual awareness defines their consciousness. Yeah, and it just doesn't. There's a lot more to it. You know, it's interesting um, to look at the intuitive side because the two sides are very complementary. We only develop the intellectual side in our culture. The other side, we even deny that it exists for the most part, but, you know, we know that it does. The intuitive side is there. Obviously, it is. All the paranormal things all happen on the intuitive side uh, besides just normal intuition happens uh, there. All the feelings the um, all the emotional stuff, you know, comes out of the intuitive side. Doesn't come out of the intellectual side. It's all into, you know, it all's intuitive side. So you have this intuitive side, and it has the it has the the um, properties that it has access to very very precise and accurate data on almost everything because all of those databases that I talk about are all accessible on this intuitive side but it has a very problematic process. The process is for the consciousness to retrieve it, it has to be in a calm state. It can't be thinking of other things. You know, it, it needs to, uh, you know, uh, have some experience with altered states in order to get there. So we have all of this process that has a lot, you know, that's very changeable. A person's mood, what a person's thinking, you know, how much things on a person's mind, all this changes from time to time. So this very, um, pr this process of getting the intuitive information has a lot of uncertainty in it. But it's connected to a database that is wonderfully complete. On the other hand, the intellect is a very precise process. It's called logic. Very precise process. But it almost never has enough data to produce a deductive conclusion. The intellect always has just pieces of data here and there for, you know, except for the most trivial situations. Uh, it has 10%, 1%, 3% of the data. You know, should I marry this woman or not? Well, there's just not enough data to tell that because you don't have future probabilities. You don't know what's going to happen or who's going to do what next. You just don't know. So the intellect is always guessing. You have this precise tool with very ratty information, whereas on the intuitive side, you have this precise information and a ratty tool. But between the two of them, they can make a whole person much smarter and much more functional than either one of them could do by themselves. Unfortunately, we only exercise and develop our intellectual side in our culture. We let the intuitive side go. So when we do try to pull out things on that intuitive side, we find it difficult. The intellect keeps jumping in the way, like Ingo was explaining to us. Uh, we don't trust that intuitive side. We think it sometimes gives us wrong answers because, well, we're not very good at it. We've never developed it. Fact is, if you spend time developing that intuitive side, it's just as dependable and just as, as uh, accessible when you want it 
as the intellect side, but you have to develop it. Thank you, Tom. That's very good. Thank you, Gary, for your interesting questions, and I hope you'll join us again next week, next month. Uh, Carolyn, if you'd like to go ahead with your question. Hello. Uh, I have um, a question actually related to Gary's. Um, like, I would like to know, like, how you can differ differentiate between, like, a longing that you have, like a desire that comes from the intellect or from your being. How can you tell the difference where it comes from? Is that yeah. the question, Caroline? Yes. So you know it's there. You're just not sure where it's coming from, whether it's something that you should just throw away because, oh, it's just my intellect getting in the way, probably my ego, or whether it's something you should act on because it's a deep part of your inner self. Exactly. You will never know for sure. <laughs> you will never really know for sure because... As long as you have, you know, as long as you have some fear, as long as you have some ego and some beliefs, then those will all be mixed in with your other thoughts, with the parts from your, your, uh, you know, your, your inner self, your intuitive side of where you are and what your, what your core is. Who's the authentic Caroline? You know, they're all mixed up together. The only way to work this problem is to get rid of that fear and to get rid of those beliefs and that ego, and then you become more and more authentic, and then the things that you feel are all you from at the core. But as long as you have fear, this other stuff's going to be there. As long as you have ego, this other stuff's going to be there, but you can't really separate it. You don't know. Now, you can think about it, but sometimes it's just confusing, you know, because it's not the it's not the action. You can say, well, okay, I want to reduce my entropy and grow up, but that's about me. So is that ego? Is my wanting to grow up and my wanting to spend time on myself getting rid of my ego? Is that just ego talking to itself about getting rid of itself? You see, and pretty soon you can get all wadded up into a ball to where you, you just confuse yourself. The way to deal with it is use due diligence. That means you, you think about it, you care about that what you do is done for the right reasons. Think about that. Come to your best conclusion, even though there'll be uncertainty. There's always uncertainty. You know, I tell you, uh, live gracefully with uncertainty. But do 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 diligence, that's D-O-D-U-E, do do diligence, and, <laughs> and then make your choice and live it. Then look, look and see what happens. So it takes courage to just say, do it and see what happens, see where it goes. And then you look at it after you live it and you say, well, was that a good choice or was that not a good choice and why? And now you have a lot more information to help you answer those questions of was it a good choice and why, because you've lived it. You see, it's not theoretical anymore. And then you'll learn from it and you'll say, well, all right, this part of it was okay, but this other part, oh, that didn't work out so well. That was unintended consequences. All right, now you say, well, 
how did that come about? Why didn't I see that coming? And then you learn something, and the next time, you'll do it better. So the only way to solve this problem is not to be afraid to act because you can't figure out what the right answer is, is to take your best shot, do it, live it, and then learn from it. That's how we grow up. We never grow up if we always sit on the sideline not knowing exactly what to do so we don't do anything. We don't make a choice because you don't know if it's the right choice. And yes, those choices are major choices. They may cause you happiness or may cause you misery. They may make other people in your life happy or miserable. It's not that they don't have consequences. They do have consequences. And you're going to make a choice and let those consequences happen however they happen, deal with it, learn from it, and go on and do better next time. That's how life has to be lived. You can't sit and wait until you figure out exactly what the right answer is before you do anything or you'll spend your whole life on the sidelines and won't learn much. So give it your best shot. Grab life and, you know, give it a good shake. Go do it, live it, be it, and see where it takes you. And you can learn as you go. If you start down a path and it turns out it's got some sticky points, Try to solve them. Yes, you could have gone down a different path that didn't have those sticky points, but you chose this one. Now try to learn from it. 